the intake area into the prison, it's exactly what you would imagine in movies then with like barbed wire everywhere, a gun tower in the middle. Everybody's watching as you're coming in. Like you have no idea what to expect. And in this place, it was a maximum security. Today's episode is a true story of how one bad decision on one random night can irreversibly impact the lives of many, including your own. Age 20, today's guest drove drunk, seriously injured another person, and ended up in prison for two years. After her sentence, she turned her life around and has used the lessons learned to educate and better the lives of others. Due to the seriousness of the accident and the nature of her current work, the guest decided after the interview to remain anonymous, so we have honoured that. Episode 55. Enjoy. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Perfect. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. All the way from Austin, Texas. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Now you've had well, your story is an interesting story, and I think it's a story that a lot of people in regards to driving and particularly in Australia, I'd say that there's probably a lot of drink driving that goes on, but but you got incarcerated for drink driving. You went to prison. How long were you in prison for? Yeah, um, I went to prison for, I was sentenced to 24 months, and mm-hmm. I did 20 months just with good behavior. So mm-hmm. I ended up spending a little under two years in prison. Why? What's the difference between jail and prison over there? Because it's different, whereas to us, it's the same. Yeah, you're actually right about that. And I've been um, communicating with um, a friend in London who went to prison and learning the differences. So our jails are known as like county jails, and they have them in different counties within the states Mm -hmm. so they're usually people are more in and out for smaller scale crimes Mm -hmm. um and then they're shorter sentences so anything under a year you would be in county jail anything over a year you go to prison so you know it's just longer sentences and to be honest you normally end up having more uh, freedom with things in prison, more like activities and anything along those lines, like visitation wise. So county is a little bit more limited when it comes to that. So for people, for the listeners, I mean, most people that in Australia, if you get done for drink driving, it's a, it's a fine or a slap on the wrist. It's not 20 months in prison. What made you end up in prison for so long? Yeah, so it's a good question. And it is similar here. You might end up with probation or something like that for just drunk driving. But I was in an accident where somebody was really injured. Mm -hmm. So um, my maximum sentence could have been five years. And I did get two years and three years out. So with the injury of another person mm-hmm. that resulted in um, prison time. 
Were you conscious, like when you were going, hopping into the car that night, were you conscious of the fact that you were drunk? You weren't. You thought you were fine to drive. I think that I was conscious that I was drunk, but I also lived in a world of it's not going to happen to me. And I Mm. feel like we do that a lot in life um, in general. And so I was conscious that I was drunk, yes, but I really did not think that it would ever result in such a life-changing event for someone else. So you were, I've, uh, I'm, I'm pissed, but I can get home. Like I'll be fine to drive. It was yeah. that mentality. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what I ha- was with a friend of mine, so you know there was just some fun happening at right. the time. Yeah. Fun fun happening I say fun then it's (laughs) now I look back I looked at it like it was fun then I don't take a sip and drive now ever ever but it just wasn't something that I thought would ever happen at all Mm -hmm. okay so explain to me the events of the night how did you get to the point where you were what events led up to you deciding to hop behind the wheel in a drunk state Really, I was, to be honest, I was just out with a guy that I had been visiting with and we wanted to continue, you know, hanging out and we just decided we were going to go. And it was before Uber and Lyft and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, where we lived in Florida, like the partying scene was the norm for a lot of us. And it wasn't something that we thought twice about, to be completely honest. Mm Mm-hmm. And now looking back, it was the most selfish decision I could ever make. But I mean, really, we just wanted to keep spending time together and mm. we're used to used to doing things like that. Talk me through the events that night. You hop behind the wheel and then what happened? Um, yeah, so we were driving and it actually happened um, – like less than a mile from my house. And it's interesting because my mom used to tell me all the time, don't drink and drive. You can hurt someone. Don't drink and drive. And, you know, everything changed in a split second. It was just a community road. I was driving down the road and I swerved without, you know, I just did. I swerved. I shouldn't have been driving. And were you trying to miss something on the road? No, I was distracted. I was distracted by my passenger, to be Uh honest. And I have a hard time saying that because I take full responsibility, but there was a distraction. There was alcohol. Overall, like we shouldn't have been doing that. And um, there was a young woman standing outside of her car going to get into her car. And so I struck a person and two cars So I didn't even know that that happened until we stopped, um, until there was just people outside screaming. And it's, yeah. In that moment, you know, I changed the lives of so many people. Um, She was there with other family members and just... You know, 
that light, that moment changed so many people's lives. How old were you at the time? I had just turned 20. So I was underage as well. Um, the legal drinking age in the United States is 21. Mm -hmm. So I was still under the age and I was served underage at other establishments. So that did come into play a lot. Um, later. How old was the lady that you struck? She was only a couple of years older than me. Okay. So, you know, had her whole life ahead of her. Mm. So people are screaming. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming paramedics and police turn up. Yeah, the paramedics and police come, the roads are blocked off. And at that point, I called my brother and he was kind of like my person and mm -hmm. let him know. And my mom and my aunt ended up coming. So, you know, my family was there, their family. Um, the young lady had to be airlifted. So, oh, okay. So she was seriously injured. Came. She was very seriously injured. Um, we didn't know how it was going to turn out for mm -hmm. a few days. So, or even weeks or what the outcome looks like. And I can just tell you, like, in those moments, part of, like, my soul died. Mm. Um, Did you realize at the time the enormity of, like, were you so drunk that you were just like, oh, I was in an accident? Or were you at a stage where you were like, shit, this is, like, I fucked up? No, I knew right away. Yeah. Right away. And speaking to the police officers that night, I wasn't arrested that night. Uh, they don't arrest you until they know your charge. And since we didn't know what the outcome was going to be, it very easily could have been manslaughter. So I went home that night afterwards. Wow. So they do, they take your blood. And with the event of somebody being injured, you lose any rights to say no, anything like that. And at that point, I only wanted to cooperate. Mm. There's just moments where you wish you could take everything back and mm. knowing that you can't, it's just a very real, real moment. So you're, I'm assuming that you probably didn't sleep for those. If you said you didn't know for weeks, it would have been weeks until you got charged. It was months. Really? Yeah. And like you said, like, I'm sure you didn't sleep. I still to this day don't sleep well. Mm. Um, I didn't, I don't think that I slept for days. And the that feeling of being in bed that night and just, you know, in a fetal position of just feeling sick and honestly, like wanting to die, like at any moment, if I could trade places, I'm the type of person that, like, I don't watch any type of, like, fighting on TV. I don't say hurtful things to people. So just knowing that I caused such great harm, um, it was unbearable. It was just, yeah, it was so unbearable. But, yeah, it was months until the charges were pressed, and we didn't know when it was going to happen. So there was a lot of evidence, discovery, and... Um, seeing how she recovered, mm 
And then, you know, all that time, my parents hiring attorneys and reading all of the articles that were published all over the news and, you know, hate forums, understandably so, by the neighbors because it also impacted everyone that was there that night was all part of that. And, but nothing is worse than your own shame. Like you, you as the person agree with those people. There's no like, but I'm this and I'm that. It's like, no, like I agreed. Um, so yeah, it took, I think I was arrested in February. So, and it was the beginning of December. So it took about three months to be arrested. What were the lady's injuries? You said that you weren't sure whether or not she was going to make it. What were her injuries? She had severe brain injuries. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what were you charged with when they arrested you in Feb? DUI with serious bodily injury. Okay. And mm-hmm. what's the maximum you could get? Five years. What was that? They come to your home and they arrest you, I'm assuming, the police. What was the process of getting arrested? They do, um, although I was not home in that time. Although I was, you know, a kid that partied and was fairly self-destructive, I also have always been very passionate about health mm-hmm. and fitness. So in that time, you know, my only outlet for stress was exercising. And for me, just to say this, it was to the point of unhealthiness. Um, but also I was in such a fight or flight response that it was Mm. just my, you know, fighting for my feelings. And so I was at the gym, they came to my house and I wasn't there. So they arrested me at the gym. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Did the people at the gym know what was going on? Kind of. My mom called me to let me know, so I got dressed and went outside. But there are windows. Yeah. You know, so people did see. But that was the least of my worries. Yeah. So they arrest you in the car park. What? What's the next step of the process? So you're taken and you're booked and there's like a holding area at county. Um, So they run your fingerprints, they take your mug shots, and then you're put in a holding cell. I was able to be bonded out um, because there were still a lot more, you know, court proceedings and discovery to be done. So I did go home that night and... Why do they do that? Why do they arrest you when they've still got so much more legwork to do in the case? When the initial charges are filed, you're arrested. And that's a common, common thing. And then the court process goes on and both attorneys have a case to put together. So on both sides. So no one was ready for that. So how long were you in, how long were you bonded for? How long were you on, yeah, how long were you out before the trial started? So I would go every month to show up for a court date. So every month I went and Uh we would extend. 
And I was home for about a year and a half. So, okay. So if you didn't bond out, you would have been in prison for a year and a half before you even started the trial. In jail, but yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Just trying to get my head around it. So every time you're turning up in each month in the 18-month process, you weren't sure whether or not you were going to start, like if you are going to get the continuance? No, you knew. Your lawyer knew going into it. So there was a conversation of we're going to extend, we're going to extend. And in that time, um, the district attorney, so the person leading the case from the state, uh, would not come down on five years. So there was a lot of back and forth with that and with the family and my side. So so the family got uh, had input in regards to your mm-hmm. sentence. Okay. Yeah. So we ended up doing an open plea agreement and which basically means you go to trial and the both sides are there. So it's basically trial, both parties speak and And is that jury um, involved or is that just judge? Just judge. So an open okay. plea agreement's just judge, but you waive any rights to settling. Like if you want to settle with a lower sentence, like whatever he decides that day, is it's like a jury, if, if a jury were to decide. Okay, but at the, at the same time, you're looking at a five-year maximum and the guy won't mm-hmm. come down for five years, so you really had nothing to lose. No. Okay. Okay. Yep. So you go through the process and you get handed down um, – what was the actual, I know you got out in 20 months, but what was the actual sentence? 24 months sentenced to prison with three years probation. So still a total of five years, but it was split. So what happens, um, I can just hear your pen clicking too, so just be aware of that. Um, what happens, so you get sentenced and then at that time, what happens then? At that time, you're taken away right mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. Um, can I say one thing about like the court yeah. and all of that? Yeah. So you do have an opportunity to speak. And right. I don't remember my exact words. It was almost, it was just an outer body experience. But I just feel like I'm sorry. There's no justice in mm. that sense. I did... I did have an opportunity to respect or to express how remorseful I was. But in those moments, it was really, really important to me to just take full responsibility. Was and that pre-sentencing or post? This was pre. Okay. So this was during the open plea agreement trial okay. was just, you know, whatever punishment they see fit. Because honestly, like I wanted to go to prison. Mm. I could barely live with myself and I do believe that there's consequences to actions and Mm -hmm. I'll never forget what the judge said to me that day um he looked at me and he was like it was almost like the perfect storm anything that could have gone wrong did go wrong and he's like I have no doubt in my mind how sorry you are but I do believe in punishment Mm. and then he gave me my sentence what was it like being in that courtroom and saying those words and seeing the family? Like, what was their response to you saying that? I have a hard time even remembering that. Mm. 
I was so emotional. Um, at that point, you're just, you're almost numb mm. to what's happening. Just be, you're so disassociated and, you know, their minds were already made up and I agree with what they wanted. So, mm. yeah. So what is it? So the sentence is handed down. You've said your piece in, in court. Um, and then what's the actual practicalities of what happens then? Are you taken away right then and then on the spot? Yeah, you're taken right then. And you're taken to the county jail. So, mm-hmm. um, and you're booked in the county jail. Before I was just in a holding area. Mm-hmm. And this time they took me to the jail and they're broken up into little pods. I had never been to jail before, so. Had you done you, any research of what to expect? Like what should I be wearing on me in when I go to court so it makes it easy when I'm in, when I go to jail? Like have you, had you done any research like that? I did do a lot of preparation as far as self-defense leading up to it. Yeah. Um, I took serious, serious classes with a gentleman who taught me how to defend myself. Yeah. Um, weekly for a long time. So I did research there. Um, I did not do research on what to expect when I go. It was almost too much to handle just Mm -hmm. looking at all of that. I did wear minimal professional wear, but all of that's taken from you as soon as you go. So I didn't have anything on my person that was valuable. Okay. So no ramen noodles in your pockets? No, nothing. Okay. Just right. slacks, shoes, <laughs> shirt. That okay. was it. Yeah. So they take you and from the court and mm-hmm. you you go to a, to a booking process. Yeah, you go back through the booking process and they take you to, you know, your – they take you to the main area. And when you get there, I hear them say, like, take her to prison block. So there's different pods and – one of the pods is for women that are going to prison and or have been there a long time awaiting trial for serious crimes mm-hmm. um, that probably are going to prison. So in a sense, it was really, really scary to hear those words. And you're mm-hmm. like, you're more scared of the prison piece. But in actuality, those women had been there longer and were a little bit more settled. So when people are coming in and out off the streets, there's a lot of drug involvement, mental illness, like it's wild. So although prison sounds scarier than jail for us, now knowing the details, it was almost a better, you know, like a better environment to be in. Okay. So so had when they said take her to prison block, was that when it sunk in that you were going to prison or had it still not really registered that you were getting locked up for two years? Oh, it registered and I knew and mm. I just didn't know what to expect from there. So that was hard. Um, how to make phone calls, what the environment was like, you know, if they're so in county, in the county here, you have cells where you're closed in. So you have one person that you room with. Each person has like a toilet and a sink. Um, but you each also have a person nothing. or each cell? Each cell, sorry, okay. each cell. So each two people have a 
bathroom and or toilet in the mm-hmm. sink and a small um a small mirror I did do a lot of research on like what to expect and just as far as communication with people and not giving too much information and really keeping to myself and not trusting anyone so in a place where you're so vulnerable you do know you're going to prison you have a lot of questions you're terrified you're also on your own like it Mm -hmm. was the most I'm on my own like there is nobody coming to save me moment Mm. Why, in terms of not giving up too much information, is that just so that they don't have leverage on you? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You really have to protect yourself. And if people think they can take advantage of you, they will. It could just put you in very dangerous situations. People can steal from you. There was one girl in county that tried to steal from me. And, um, you know, we just very quickly addressed it. So... Is that a nice way of saying you punched her in the face? No, I did not do any of that. Um, <laughs> thank, thank goodness. Um, she was a rare one. She had just come in and was detoxing. So there was other things going on. And okay. that you just steer clear from. Um, but yeah, and then there's a community area where you guys can gather within the pod during the day. And so this basically is count- just right. So this is county. This is before you go into prison, prison. Yeah. And you don't know how long you're going to be there. So and they transfer you a lot of times in the middle of the night. And you know that you're going to a main facility. So, but you don't know when. Nobody knows who. And so you're kind of, it's another waiting game. So a lot of this was just waiting. It was waiting for the year and a half. It was waiting when you get there. Mm -hmm. And it's a term we use a lot in prisons. It's like, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. Like you're rushed to get there and then you're just at the liberty. And in those moments, you just know, like you're a prisoner of the state. Like you have no say, no nothing. Like your rights are gone. So yeah, it was just waiting till they take you. And the reason that they don't tell you when they're taking you is it's for security reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, That way nobody can share when they're going or where they're going. So what was your Sally like when, how long, how long did you end up, were you in county, county jail for, and what was your Sally like there? I was in county for a couple of weeks, probably like two or three weeks. And I kept hearing like, you want to go to prison. You want to get to prison. Like the food is better. You know what I mean? Like there's just, you have more room to like move around. You're not in in county, like you're inside all day. Like you don't, you go outside for maybe a few minutes. So essentially like it's what people think of for prison, I feel like. But um, I ended up being, and we call them bunkies. Um, My bunkie, while I was in county ended up being a very nice woman, but a lot of times in prison women identify or, you know, I don't want to say this wrong. So I'm very small. She was probably, you know, I maybe came up to her shoulders. She was a very strong individual. Most people would be terrified of Tanya. And I'll tell you when they, she wasn't my original bunkie, but when they moved me into her cell, 
um, because sometimes they move you when people move in and out. Uh, I was terrified. I remember an officer asking me one. She's like, she used me by my last name then. And she's like, how are you doing with Tanya? Or are you okay in the cell with Tanya? And I was like, I just asked her. I was like, That was an awesome thing to ask. It was so nice of her to ask. She actually asked out of concern. She was not being anything but... Was this nice. was this lady? Did she sort of run? Was she like the chief? Chief the in there, chief. you know? Yeah. Okay. She knew the women that had. Oh, you broke up. What was that? She knew. That's all right. We all get tech issues. Don't stress about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we had tech issues, guys. So we're back, and um, we were just talking about um, your Sally. Was it Tonya? Yeah, her name is Tanya. And she was running the pod. Oh, uh, yeah. So I thought when you meant uh, the person running the pod that you were referring to the officer <laughs> that was in charge. But Tanya was kind of in charge too, actually, now that you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tanya ran the show. Yeah, exactly. So what was that like? I mean, obviously – <clears throat> I can't remember whether or not we were recording when you were saying how tiny you are. You were saying, how tall are you? I'm five, one and a half. Okay. Yeah. So you're a, you're a tiny little thing. Um, mm-hmm. What was the reality of being in a cell with Tonya? Uh, terrifying at first. Um, I went in and I was just hoping and praying that everything ended up okay. Uh, I had no idea, but I will say throughout my life, I get along with most people. And if there's any like skills that I have, it's, it's that. And, um, so I was terrified going in and when the officer asked me how I was in there with Tanya, I, my response was like, would it matter? Like, would it matter if I wasn't okay? And she was like, no, not really. I was like, well, then (laughs) I guess we're going to hope for the best. And uh, she ended up being so nice. She was giving me so many pointers and just was telling me the most hilarious stories. So at a time where you're terrified Mm. and just being the whole environment is so dehumanizing and, you know, the whole. But if you're that paranoid, are you sort of thinking in the back of your mind, why is she being so nice to me? What does she want? What Where is she leading me to in terms of? <clears throat> That's always in the back of your mind. Yeah. Um. You definitely do put on a good face and you laugh and you say thank you, but you also don't get too close. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. that's That'd be hard when you're living with somebody all the time, not to sort of just. Trust. Yeah, like Danny Gard, yeah. It is hard. It's very hard. However, it is so high in that environment that you just know better. And when you asked if I did research on going in or anything like that, my mom did connect with a guy that had come home with his mom and him, and he wrote a book around that time, like what to do in prison, what to expect. I didn't read it, but my mom read it and gave me a lot of pointers. Either way, the main piece was... Don't trust. 
don't trust. Don't give too much information away. And that's a rule in prisons and jail. It's like you don't ask how long people have. You don't ask what they did. Like you don't ask those questions. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, a lot of times it goes back to protecting yourself. So you don't want somebody to be jealous that you have less time and or mess that up for you, like pick a fight with you. Um, and then also it's it's really just an unspoken rule that you don't ask what people have done. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah. hoping that I'm ever going to be in the situation to know that information. No. But <laughs> okay. So Tonya turned out to be a gem. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That was nice of her to give you so many pointers and stuff. Yeah, she really did. I met her girlfriend when I got to prison, actually. Okay. So... It ends up being a smaller world. Very with small. It's a good and, thing that you got on yeah. with it because that could have been very awkward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could have. Yeah. Could have been very awkward. So when you got transferred to prison, you said they transfer you in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. How far were you into your sentence then when you got transferred? Probably like two or three weeks. Okay. Okay. And then... What's the reality like when you're in prison compared to county jail? You're terrified. Yeah. Um, first, the bus ride there is exhausting and terrifying. Um, mm. You're in shackles. Everyone's in shackles. You have to get on these big buses. Um, older women, younger women, uh, you know, there's no restrooms. You don't know where you're going. There's no air in Florida, you know, on the buses. And it's just, you're exhausted and you're terrified. So getting there um, is a really long day. They like get you there. They hose you off. You have to wash your hair with like a white shampoo. It's just really rough. You actually have to wash your whole body in it, like a disinfectant shampoo. Um, just because... In prisons, diseases run rampant, and mm -hmm. um, it's just part of the process. So you're, like, basically all standing there naked, like, being hosed down, and they're yelling at you to hurry up and, you know, taking all your fingerprints. You get more pictures taken. Uh, you're given a number. So, like, you are no longer identified, like, you as a person anymore. Like, you are the number of the state. And you have to wear those badges. So like the picture of your wet hair and just if you see them, people just look blank. Like you almost, it's just like. The shutters have come down and they're just. Yeah. yeah. Like you're barely there. Like your eyes, it's almost like you can see through them. And. Yeah, you spend a whole day um, in intake where you're watching videos, reading paperwork. Um, they're marking watching videos. Like, what sort of videos are they putting on for you? Like have instructional. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what to expect. Okay. Uniform things like that. So you're given a uniform. 
and you're just given a bag of stuff like socks, underwear, bras, and your uniforms and like a laundry they bag. They provide you with bras? Yeah, like old, they're just like cotton sports bras. What happens if they don't fit you? It's just part of the luck. And you get shoes from there that hopefully they fit, but normally they're just like little slides. So you can tell when people are new to prison because when you're there for a while, you can buy like sneakers and other bras and like Mm -hmm. certain, you know, like sweatshirts and things like that if you have commentary to do so. But you can tell when mm-hmm. people are new, usually based on their shoes. Okay. So you get given all of this and then what happens? You go through this intake process, you watch the videos, you get given your uniform and your socks and shitty bras. Yeah. And then what happens? So the whole time that I was in county and on the way there, everybody was like, you're going to be put in youthful offender. You're going to be put in YO. That's what it's called. And also, I will say, like walking out of the intake area into the prison, it's exactly what you would imagine in movies of a prison with like barbed wire everywhere, a gun tower in the middle, and they're broken up into different like areas of fences of people and they're all just watching. So everybody's watching as you're coming in, like all the new people and you have no idea what to expect. And in this place, it was a maximum security. Um, it was Lowell in Florida. So it's widely seen in the news just for like very inhumane conditions. You know, it just, it was a terrifying, terrifying place to be. And they did end up taking me to youthful offender for about two weeks. So at that point you're in a dorm. So in County you have like your cells where it's like two of you in a cell mm-hmm. in prisons here. It's more of a dorm setting. So bunk beds, just rows of bunk beds. Is that more and- terrifying though? Because there's so many more personalities in there for you to, to tick off. Yeah. Yeah. It's way more terrifying. Um, And they're loud. So in county, people usually settle down at night being in your cell. Um, In the dorms, it's just you've got people all around you. So what's the first night like? Terrifying. Um, All I had heard was how dangerous and bad and aggressive the YOs are. So I didn't want to talk to anyone when you get there. So your family has to put money on your account. So for you to be able to make phone calls and mm, no, you can make collect calls. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. You have to get people approved on your phone list in prison. So in County, you can just make collect calls in prison. You, People have to submit to be able to be approved and you have no contact with them to know. So like anybody that you're in contact with, number one, doesn't know that you went. So you just like, you stop calling one day. So everybody's worried about like, did something happen to the person? And then 
I knew that when I got transferred that like they were going to be worried. So that was added stress of just like, how do I, how do people know? How do they know where I am? Nobody knows. Yeah. So, and then that night, like you just didn't sleep and the, in that specific prison, there's no air, which in, you know, in Florida, it's very, very hot and very humid. Mm-hmm. It was summer. You sweat so much that you're barely, like you can barely sleep. And yeah. So you're in this dorm with how many other women? There was probably like 60, between 60 and 80. Yeah. That's a lot. Girls, yeah. Most of them were between seven, 16 to 20 at that time. Oh, 16-year-olds were in an adult prison. Mm-hmm. They're okay. kept separate. That program is more like a boot camp. Um, then why, why didn't you not stay in the boot camp then? You didn't want to. I've seen those on t- – there's a documentary on TV. I've seen it where they try and complete a um, the boot camp for a few weeks and then if you pass, you get out. Not here. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you're sentenced, you're there. So I would have been there for two years. Okay. And it's a lot like marching all around the compound. At nighttime, if the girls are bad, which a lot of times – that happens you get up and you do drills out in the court so at any time of night the officers are often you know screaming in people's faces which I have a really soft spot for youthful offenders now like I want to be somebody that works with them just based on the conditions and what's not being provided after seeing that like that was heartbreaking why was it though but if they're in if they don't have an opportunity to get out early by doing this boot camp situation, why are they doing it? And I'm not saying it's, people should get out early if they've been – I'm not saying that so people don't jump on me, but I'm saying what's the, why don't they just put them in normal prison with guards and not have them march everywhere and have like a military aspect to it? The only reason I could think of is punishment. Like – or maybe, yeah, that would be. They're probably thinking maybe discipline. It'll so don't scare them into yeah. yeah, scare them into not reoffending. I will tell you, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you get out of that then, into mainstream normal prison? So when I originally went in, you also meet with a classification officer. So there's somebody that is your classification officer. And she told me that I was going to be declassified, which means taken out. Um, And then she went on vacation, which is why I ended up being there two weeks. So I basically just begged the officers every day to take me down to her office because you can't just leave and go down to her office. And then if you did, you'll get in trouble for being not in your area. Um, But finally, like two weeks later, they took me down to her office and I was like, I promise I'm not supposed to be in here. Like I'm not supposed to be, but paperwork goes so slow. And Mm. again, like you're a number, you don't have rights. It doesn't matter. So 
they eventually took me down to her office and they took me out. So I went back and got my stuff and then taken still in the same prison, but you're put in the intake area. So when you get to prison, there's a big, for the adults, there's a big intake area. So again, like giant dorms. Um, This had more people than like the youthful offender dorm and just beds everywhere and people waiting to be transferred to their main facility. And you don't know where that's going to be. So you could end up at any of the prisons in Florida um, or you could stay there. So you could end up being like that could be your main prison. Do you get to petition where you'd like to go in terms of this is close to my family? Do you have that opportunity? No. No. So the yes and no. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that my mom called the state an awful lot to see if I could, if we could, if I could be transferred to minimum security. That doesn't normally work. I think maybe it might've worked. I also don't know that question because you have like, you also have a main classification officer that's like outside of the prisons that does everything. Most people don't have somebody like calling and doing that. Mm. So how long were you in maximum security prison for before you got into minimum security? I would say a little over a month. What was it like in terms of the atmosphere in that maximum security? Because these women have been, they're obviously serious offenders when they're in there. I know you're not knowing what they've done. Um, I can hear you, Pen. Um, <laughs> um, so they're obviously serious offenders. Like, can is it palpable the tension in there? Like, can you feel it when it's something's going to kick off? You can. I didn't mm. see any like big fights. There was a few times where the lady next to me got a little bit heated, but normally I'm a pretty like de escalator kind of person. So Good definitely never aspect to have fed into any of that. <laughs> um, there was one occasion where I was actually a little bit like very worried. Um, mm. Talk me through that. I. With all I mentioned in the past, like I worked out a lot before I went in and I worked on getting myself as strong as I possibly could. And the self-defense as well. With the self-defense, yeah. So you shower in front of everyone. Um, Like the doors are open. The stall, if there are stalls, like, you know, there's no doors and or just all of the showers are just heads. So you're all in there together. Um. I had gotten pretty used to when I showered, like just being spoken about, like the way I looked and it so was uncomfortable. Comment, they, they would comment on you mm-hmm. in terms of trying to intimidate you or in terms of in a sexual way? I think a little bit of intimidation. I think also in a sexual way. There was right. one time where a girl... My only time of being like super scared was when a girl that had life was sitting on the toilet just like watching me shower and like rubbing her chin and she was more one of the they're called studs um identifies as a man and she has a girlfriend so her girlfriend was super pissed and that's what I was worried about. I was more worried about her girlfriend 
And then also, like, I don't know, you hear, yeah. I got that's, dressed and left. That's scary because you're not controlling that situation. The girlfriend's pissed at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. That was so an just, uncomfortable situation. So you just got dressed and left? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And then how do you avoid that happening again? Because do you have set shower times? So are you showering with the same people all the time? You have morning and night. So if you know that somebody's up at nighttime and, you know, getting ready then, you can choose to shower in the morning. So right. you just try there's to a little bit it. of avoidance there. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Oh, that would be awful having to shower in front of everybody. You get used to it, honestly. So this is one thing that I might have to revisit from the beginning piece. But when you get there, it's like a wide, it's, they call it bend over and cough. So yeah, yeah. that is one of the most dehumanizing things ever. But you get very used to just doing it just doing it and people seeing like your body right so by the time after all the because you probably had to do it when you went into intake from um initially when you got arrested you probably mm-hmm. needed to had to do it from when you got from the court into county mm-hmm. then from county to probably prison mm-hmm. probably from boot camp prison then again into the main prison so Not sure that one, but all the ones you listed, yeah. Okay. So, but then you're sort of used to bending over and coughing. So, you're Mm -hmm. used to having a shower in front of other people. Mm -hmm. It's no big deal. Mm -mm. Apart from when people are commenting. Okay. Okay. So, was there ever a situation where you had to use those self-defense lessons or was it just because you had that self-confidence you're able and and you're able to de-escalate situations quite easily it probably helped that you were smaller as well because you weren't a threat I wasn't people actually ended up calling me like the baby and because since I was so close to 21 I was usually the youngest person so um it really did work to my advantage that mm. I was never really targeted for anything. Um, I never had to use the self-defense. When I did get to Lowell that first day, though, and you're taken to the classification, you're just you're checked out by medical. Um, that was really hard. I remember just crying to the nurse because you just want to connect with somebody so bad that's like not – a prisoner and like you don't want to be looked at that it's hard to accept that for yourself that like this is who I am and also that day like a girl had been brought in with a shank so there was a fight Jesus. you know like there yeah. that definitely does happen yeah. I just didn't see any of that, that. wow so at what point you've obviously got a lot of downtime and mm-hmm. thinking time in there, you're you're very you seem to have really from the get go pretty much taken responsibility in terms of everything that had happened and 
you know, were remor- are remorseful of, of the situation. It was a time to reflect in regards to how you got to that point? Because you mentioned that there was, you were quite self-destructive and that's probably where the drinking came from. What, what led to the self-destructive behavior? The more I reflect back on it, I even think then I had a hard time like wrapping my head around. Like I had, I carried so much, like it was just my fault. I was a horrible person. I, you know, I had already had those feelings and I feel like when that happened, it just confirmed them. Did that, was that because of the trauma because of your dad? Yeah. So leading up to the accident, it's definitely something that contributed is my dad had a long history of drug abuse and he was my best friend and there was a lot shown and there was a lot glamorized. So Mm. it wasn't, um, and he also did a lot of like drug dealing with importing. So that was just my norm was counting big stacks of money Oh, so you were like helping him, like you were involved. He would in terms show of... me everything, like wow, you know, giant trash Welcome bags. Welcome to the family business, full of marijuana. Yeah, so right. and most of the guys that were associated with him ended up in federal prison or dead. So it was, it's not glamorous. It wasn't cool, but that was what I was raised to know. Mm. And then. I say that he was also a really giving person. Like it was just so, it was in the 90s with like when the opioid addiction was new and doctors were just writing that all the time. So mm-hmm. he ended up having a big problem with opiates. And into my teenage years, like seeing all of that happen and him changing, he ended up dying. I took a lot of that on. Like, I really felt like it was my job since, and in everybody always said that, like, you were his person. I felt like it was my responsibility to save him. Because you were 15 at the time, weren't you, when he passed? Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. So, with all of the guilt of not being able to save him and carrying that as a 15 year old Mm. and already yeah having feelings towards the world it stemmed a lot of unhealthy relationships so were you angry and i can understand if you're blaming yourself in that situation for your dad's death Mm -hmm. not that you could have done anything, but I think that's a, a human response. You know, the, that what if. Then I can understand where that self-destructive behaviour can stem from, you know. And that was obviously manifesting itself in, in the drinking mm-hmm. and the partying. Okay. A lot in the drinking, super unhealthy relationships. Yeah. Boyfriends that I was trying to save. So basically. Yeah. Yeah. 
so how did you got moved to minimum security? How was the what was the difference between minimum and maximum security? So the difference is there's two differences. So one of them is the minimum security prison that I got transferred to was a private prison. And there's a lot of controversy around private prisons mm. because they're for profit. Like people make yeah. money off of them. And also, I don't agree with, you know, profiting off of that. They're also usually more humane. There's more programs for people. And they're better living conditions for somebody that's in prison. So right. okay. like when you're there, you would hope like that's, you, you don't like care to, when you're there, you're like, no. it's a better, better conditions to live. You don't care if they're making a profit off me. It doesn't even matter at that point. Okay. So when you get there, it was just night and day difference. Like mm -hmm. the grounds were well kept. There was a horticulture program, you know, they did a lot with the arts. So there was paintings like, it just felt less intense. It was, there wasn't a gun tower in the center. Like there was just, it was different. How long did you have left of your um, sentence to go when you got transferred? Probably like 18 months. I still had a while. Okay. 18, 19 months. All right. That was hard though. Cause again, you're transferred on the bus where you don't know where you're going in the middle of the night. You do the whole check-in thing again and then you know you start to get used to the people that you're there with like you start to make people you know friend mm. not friends but mm. at least like people where you're like okay I can have a conversation with this person and then being uprooted again like it's just the you know you're on your own all over again so mm. you're never not on your own when you're in prison but it's still just another place another unfamiliar thing that you have to learn so how, with the minimum security prison, how close was it to your family? It was about four hours away. It was actually farther away from my family. But better conditions for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what was, how many people were in a dorm in this private prison compared to the, the state-run one? That was similar. So, and it varied per dorm, depending on what type of dorm. So a lot of the dorms were broken into like what mm -hmm. types of worker you are, what programs that you were in. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say similar around 50 to 60 people. So mm -hmm. still all one big room where everybody lives. How did you find out that you were going to, I'm assuming it was for good behavior, but how did you find out that you were going to get released earlier than, cause you got released at 20 months? Yeah. You knew that going in. So you get game time when you go to prison. What um, does that mean? Cause you were sentenced to 24 months. So yeah. So what does so game time? I think it's 10%. You get for good behavior. So if you don't get any written up at all then you automatically get like two months off. Mm -hmm. But if you do get written up, then they take some of the gain time. So it could end up being 21 months, 23 months, just depending on if you get in trouble for anything. And that's Did like you get having. Up? No. Mm -mm. Look at you, you little de escalator. <laughs> I'm a very, <laughs> outside of this, 
I can't lie to save my life. And it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you knew, you knew ahead of time this date I'm getting out. Yeah. You know, but leading up to it is you start getting antsy. It's called like short timing and you know, you break some of the rules, you talk when you're not supposed to during count, like just little things, but people start to get self-destructive around that time. That's interesting. Why do you think that is? Because everyone wants to get out. They don't want to be in there. And then you're ruining your chances of getting out if you get written up, but then you're in there for longer. A lot of it's you're scared to go home. Right. A lot of it is, you know, you have a lot of, you still have a lot of healing work to do. Yeah. Like there's shame and you start to get frustrated with yourself. A lot of people going home to families that they've left. Mm-hmm. So it just ends up being patterns that show up, like self-destructive patterns that haven't been identified. Yeah. What was it like getting out that first day and night? So uncomfortable. Really? Because you're so used to prison, so it was so foreign to you. You're so used to it. And like, even now I have like, oh, honestly, like I have a little bit of OCD, like being such a structured schedule and in an environment where you're like hyper vigilant and you can tell like new timers versus long timers based on the overall interaction from like not being able to get out of the doors. Everything is just so structured there that when you leave and you have freedom and sleeping in a comfortable bed, your stomach is usually really upset from new food. Um, and, and stress nerves, probably. Yeah. And stress. Um, you know, my whole family came and for everybody else, they were so happy. And for the person getting out, it's so uncomfortable. You don't want to be the center of attention. You feel guilty for being celebrated or that's my personal experience. Um, I also was so happy and so relieved and grateful all at the same time. But I still had a lot of feelings and areas to work through. So I say that in... You are so grateful. You're also terrified. So you're terrified to go back. You're terrified that it's all going to go away. Um, When I came home, I was on probation. So you have to go to the probation officer, however many times you're set to in the beginning, take drug tests. I didn't have a license yet. So there's still a lot. Like you're basically still a person of the state, but you're just at home and you're really scared to mess up. Did you ever reach out to the family or the the person that had the um, the brain injury? I have not. Mm. And it is not because I don't want to. Um, well, it may be better for them that you don't. Like you just that's don't know. That's why it. I haven't. Yeah. I yeah. don't, you know, I don't ever want to disrupt where somebody else is at. And if somebody came to me and wanted to have the conversation of how it impacted them, I would have that conversation, but I Mm. don't want to be the person that causes more harm to somebody to benefit or to ease my guilt. 
Okay, we're leaving the podcast there today, everybody. Unfortunately, the guest did ask after we recorded the podcast to remain anonymous, and the last part of the conversation does have a lot of identifying factors in there. Uh, needless to say, she has turned her life around and is now doing a lot of good out there in the world, um, but please use this as a cautionary tale and do not drink and drive. Stay safe, everybody, and thanks again for listening to the podcast. Cheers. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 